0: Good to see you this morning. Go ahead and uh, grab a Bible. If you have one, turn to Acts chapter 6. Uh, if you don't have one, there are a few Bibles in the seats around you. You can grab one of those or we're going to throw uh, the, the passages on the screen uh, behind me. So uh, I want you to kind of imagine in your mind's eye that you wake up one morning and you grab your iPad or your iPhone or your phone or whatever and your cup of coffee and you sit down and, and, then, and then flashing across your screen are the following headlines. From the New York Times, five rabbis leave their synagogues and convert to the Christian faith. From the Minneapolis Star Tribune, dozens of Islamic leaders renounce their faith and they join a local Christian church. From the LA Times, local Buddhist priests cause stir by declaring that Jesus Christ is God. From the USA Today, Conversions to Christianity rapidly multiplying throughout the United States. Local church leaders cannot explain why. And then from the Boston Globe, the sale of Bibles is sharply up 200%. And then Fox News, probably the biggest miracle of all, HBO star Bill Maher declares that Jesus Christ is the way and the truth and the life and begins preaching the gospel in the streets of Los Angeles. Now, how how many of you actually believe this could happen? I want to see a show of hands today. How many of you believe that could happen? Yeah, I I believe it could happen too. Do you know that it's happened numerous times in biblical history and in the history of the church? Do you know that? Do you realize that God has sovereignly moved throughout human history in, in ways that we have not seen, this generation has not seen? And this phenomenon is called revival or awakening. And the idea of revival is really built on a a couple of different realities. The first one is the reality that God is the decisive giver of all spiritual life. But on the other hand, as human beings, we have a tendency, even as Christians, to drift into lifelessness. That we have this tendency to backslide and to drift into, you know, into spiritual deadness and indifference and weakness, We have this tendency in our life to backslide. So on one hand, God is the giver of all spiritual life. On the other hand, there's this gravitational pull in you and in me and in every human being away from God and into sin. And that creates this need for reviving, this this need for a coming back to spiritual life, a fresh manifestation of the Spirit of God. Now we see throughout Scripture the writers of scripture are expressing a desire for revival to be seen in their day. Let me show you, I, I could have literally shown you dozens of examples. Let me just show you two. This one, this one from Psalm 85, verses 6 and 7. The psalmist prays this, "'Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation.'" And so what he's really talking about is he's talking about the people of God, God's chosen people, the people of Israel. And, and he, he acknowledges that at one time God showed them their steadfast love, but he's, he's realizing that they have drifted away from it. And his prayer is that God would do that work again, that he would reveal his steadfast love to his people again and grant salvation. Look at Habakkuk chapter three, verse two, oh Lord, I've heard the report of you And your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. Now, revive what? Well, he's talking about the work of the Lord, which is the work of bringing people back into relationship to him. In the midst of the years, he prays, make it known in wrath, which is what we deserve. O God, remember mercy. Give us mercy. Mercy. So what you see here, there's just two examples of the writers of Scripture longing for the work of God in their day, in the people of their day. That's their, that was the prayer that they were praying. There are numerous examples of God working revival throughout, throughout Scripture. You know, one of the most notable ones in the Old Testament is the story of Jonah and the whale. And we get so hung up on the fact that Jonah was swallowed by a whale you know, and then vomited out, that, that that's kind of how we remember that story, right? We're like, oh, can that really happen? You know what I mean? Like, we, we kind of debate it among ourselves, but we don't, we don't really realize what happened in the story of Jonah, that Jonah went to Nineveh and he preached repentance to the pagan people of Nineveh because they were so wicked, and you know what happened? God granted a revival and they repented, And so that's the bigger miracle, that's the more incredible miracle, more than just, you know, the, you know, Jonah being swallowed in the belly of a whale. But then you see another example of revival where God's Spirit moved to renew and revive the people of Israel in the day of Ezra and Nehemiah. People, as the exiles, were making their way back into their homeland and rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. It was a real spiritual revival that occurred uh, in Ezra and Nehemiah's day. You think about John the Baptist, and we you know, you think about his ministry, we get so hung up that, you know, he had this diet of locusts and honey, you know, sounds pretty good to me, but we get, we get so hung up on that. But church, he probably baptized thousands of people for the repentance of sins as a result of God's spirit working through his ministry. So we don't really consider that. We don't, we don't consider that when, you know, through Jesus and the ministry of the disciples, revival and awakening was happening In in Israel, we think about Paul's missionary journeys where the Spirit of God was moving so powerfully, scores of people coming to faith in Christ. So, revival is really the sovereign work of God bringing life back to His people, bringing His people back to His heart. And as a result, in all of that process, large numbers of non Christians coming to faith in Christ. It's it's pretty breathtaking when you think about it. You know, an authentic movement of God is really hard to, hard to miss. I mean, when when God is working in this way, there are just several signs of it. So you notice you, you, you notice that people have a hunger for the Word of God, like they're just seeking and pursuing, living and knowing uh, the Word of God. They have an awareness of the seriousness of sin in their own life. Um, That leads to a powerful repentance. There's a there's a newfound interest in the in the in praying and in praying corporately as the body of Christ. There's a new burden that people have for lost friends and family members and coworkers who do who do not know Christ. So these are just kind of characteristics of a movement of God on a mass scale like this. And so you know I I uh, graduated from Asbury University and. um, Asbury is a small Christian liberal arts college uh, near Lexington, Kentucky, and Asbury has a history of revivals that have taken place there, where the Spirit of God has moved uh, in that college, uh, in that student body. It's not a very big student body, but um, there's a book that chronicles the revivals that have taken place at Asbury. There was a huge revival that occurred in 1950. There was another one in, in 1970 and the, and the story goes like this at Asbury we had chapel three times a week and and so there was worship and there was the preaching of the word and then there was an invitation for the students to come forward and respond and, and so they gave an invitation and half the student body came forward and they were praying around the altar railing all of these students kneeling and praying and they were, in some instances, three and four students deep. And, and, and so they, they didn't know really what to do. So they thought, well, we, we kind of need to end the chapel service, you know, because we've got to get on with classes. And the students didn't leave. And it wasn't because, you know, they didn't study for the 11th, you know, the next exam they had coming around the corner. It wasn't that. It was because God was moving in their heart in such a way. And, um, and, and that, that chapel service specifically in 1970 it didn't end. Like the, the service didn't stop. It lasted an entire week where 24 hours a day for seven days, students were in there worshiping, praying. There was an open mic. The revival that happened when I was, when I was a student in 91 was on a much smaller scale. But the student body president came on the stage and on an open mic began confessing his sins to the student body and prayed a prayer of repentance. And just in humility you know, he wasn't bragging on Satan or anything like that. But he was just honest about, I am just haven't been living the life. And I, 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 I want to I repent of that. And, uh, and that chapel service was, was just unforgettable. And uh, students just continued, just continued in that vein, worshiping, praying, asking. And it, and it all started, interestingly enough, with a faithful few people faculty and students who were praying for such a movement on campus. Praying for days, weeks, months, sometimes years for such a movement of God to occur. And, uh, and that's uh, God in his grace answered their prayers. I, I love how Pastor J.D. Greer says uh, and says how he describes revival. He says, in an awakening, the spirit of God doesn't typically do a new thing, He simply pours a greater power upon the normal things faithful Christians are already doing. Prayers become more and more intense. Worship becomes more and more joyous. Repentance more and more sorrowful. And the preached word yields greater effect, he says. The Spirit of God multiplies the effectiveness of our normal work of seed planting, bringing a bountiful harvest, and he does more in a moment than we could do in a lifetime what an amazing thought now church wouldn't it be incredible if God did such a thing here I mean could you imagine that that if God would bring a revival in our church we need revival here wouldn't it be amazing if God brought revival to our community that God God would bring revival to our nation where we would see marriages healed and families restored, and relationships reconciled. Could you imagine driving by Whiteland High School or Center Grove High School and there are hundreds of kids outside gathered around the flagpole praying and it's not even see you at the pole Wednesday. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's not even that. They're just praying because God is working among high school and middle school students. Could, could you imagine You know, church attendance here so full that we have to add a third and fourth service just to accommodate people who are pursuing God. Can you imagine prayer groups meeting all throughout the community, where you work, where do you go to school, in parks, with, you know, stay-at-home, mom, whatever, you know, can you, can you imagine that? I, 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 don't, I think it would be breathtaking to, to really behold, and, and, and church, I'll just be honest with you, I, I'm no prophet, I, I, I don't have any special insight, I really don't, I, I don't know what what God is planning on doing in the future I just know this I just know that when God's people pray God moves I I do know that and I know he doesn't owe us a revival he doesn't owe us anything he's already given us everything but I do know when God's people pray God moves and so we're in this series called when God's people pray and part of this is just God leading us not to be a church that prays but that we would be a praying church which is really what the church is supposed to be. And so I want to show you today an example from Acts chapter 6 where um, Christians were so devoted to prayer, the, the early believers were so devoted to prayer that the church just exploded with the movement of God, with people coming to faith in Christ. And so you see this direct correlation between the church praying and God moving. I mean, it's just unmistakable. It's throughout the book of Acts. The church at prayer, the church praying together, the church committed to prayer, and then, and then God doing some amazing things. So it's pretty unmistakable. So I want to show you an example from this. In Acts chapter 6, we're going to read verses 1 through 7, and I'm going to ask if you're willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of the word of God today? So Luke writes this, he says, now in these, in those, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number... And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but not the word of God. It lasts forever. You may be seated. So I think it's just really tempting to kind of read through this so fast you don't realize actually what's happening in in Acts chapter 6, but I, I want you to notice a couple of things. I want you to notice verse 7 where Luke tells us that the word of God continued to increase and the number, he says, the number of disciples multiplied. Like God wasn't adding to their number, he was multiplying their number. I mean, think about the math. He was multiplying the number of disciples, the number of people who were confessing Christ and following, and following him. And so Bible commentators estimate that about, about this point in Acts there's 25,000 people in the church in Jerusalem at that time 25,000 and uh, it just continues it continues to grow but notice something else about verse 7 he says a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith now that's an interesting observation as well because the priests that he's talking about are the very priests that conspired to put Jesus on the cross the priests that he's talking about are the very priests that were persecuting the apostles in the first five chapters of the book of Acts. And so these priests came obedient to the faith and it's, and it's absolutely clear that God is on the move. And so the question that I have is, as I'm looking at this, if God were to move in such a way today, what would he require of us? What is he asking of us so that we could kind of facilitate and and? and participate and be a part of the movement of God what are some prerequisites for uh you know if you will for revival I want to just share with you in the time that we have just three conditions to revival and uh let me let me just jump in with the first one very simply I I think the first condition for revival is a, a cultural challenge that anticipates revival I think that's the first condition a cultural challenge that anticipates, that, that sees the need, that we observe the need every day for revival. You're like, well, what do you mean? Well, let me, let me explain what I mean. There are a number of cultural challenges that the early Christians were facing in the book of Acts, and, uh, that, and, and these cultural challenges kind of opened their eyes to, to, the, to a need for the movement of God uh, in their day. Now, what were those challenges? I, I think first and foremost, there was hostility. I think there was hostility towards the movement of God, towards the church, towards Christians. There was, first of all, religious hostility. The religious leaders in Jerusalem did not want God moving in this way. They did not want, they they didn't want the message of Christ to be spread. So as a result, the religious leaders in Jerusalem arrested, you know, the apostles multiple times, had them thrown into prison and beaten and, and ordered them to, to stop preaching the gospel. And they said, how can we stop? We must continue to preach. And they did. And they did it in the face of hostility. The church also faced political hostility during that time. They faced political hostility from the Roman government. You know, church, the Roman Empire, the Roman government was so pagan, it would make the United States government look tame today. I mean, they were pagan and oppressive And uh, in fact, the emperors believed that they were God and they demanded to be worshiped as God. It was a common occurrence throughout the Roman Empire when Roman governors, senators, officials in the Roman Empire, when they had political opponents, they murdered them and their families. And that was just a normal occurrence. That was kind of the flavor of the hostility that they experienced in that day. But it gets even more interesting because... Because the Roman Empire was so hostile to Christianity. You know, in, in, in AD 64, there was a huge fire that spread through the city of Rome. And the, the citizens of Rome thought that Emperor Nero was behind it. That he started the fire just for his, his own amusement. And uh, so um, you can see the kind of faith that they had in his character. And so, so what he did is he turned around and blamed Christians for starting the fire. And he started systematically arresting and torturing Christians who lived in the city of Rome on false charges that they had something to do with the fire and then he declared open game on Christians that if you wanted to take kind of some vigilante uh, justice out for yourself on Christians, he declared Christians open game you could you could do with whatever you wanted to do with them, and there would be no prosecution Now could you imagine raising a family in that city and during that time where uh, this huge fire caused all of these problems and and uh, you're just living, you know, with having to have eyes in the back of your head all the time because you, you didn't know what was going to happen to you. Well, this was this was a daily occurrence. Not only that, but I think the early Christians were dealing with, with some other internal cultural challenges of the day. And Luke describes one of those challenges. It almost split the church. There was this issue of the daily distribution of food. So So the Roman... You know, the Roman Empire didn't have social security as a safety net. The church was the safety net. And so the church, following the word of God, took it upon themselves to care for widows. And there were all these widows in the city of Jerusalem. There were, there were, there were Hebrew widows. And then there were another group of Hebrew widows that had moved out of Israel into the Mediterranean world, lived there for several years, picked up some Greek cultural you know, identity markers and then move back into into Israel in that day. But what was happening according to Luke, somehow, some way, and we're not told how this was happening, but the Grecian widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the early Christians took up offerings, they bought food, and they fed the widows daily. At least they could have one meal a day and feel the love of God and experience the love of God. But, but this, this started to be a problem because you see it in verse 1. Let me read it to you again. Luke records this. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, the Greeks, arose against the Hebrews because the widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So, so so it this was this was a point of tension between the two groups. And so complaining and grumbling started working its way through the ranks. And so and so somehow this was happening. But this this threatened to split the church and put a, an immediate stop to the work of God. Because God doesn't work when Christians are divided. And uh, and so division was a huge threat. And then then there was the whole issue of distraction. I think there was a danger for the apostles, as as people started coming to the apostles saying, "Look, we've got this issue. You guys have got to figure out a solution to this. We're looking to you for leadership." There was a real temptation for them to kind of take it on themselves and say, "Okay, we'll start waiting tables now." And. Uh, just to kind of solve the problem and to please the crowd, but they refused to do that. They said, no, we can't do this. We're not called to wait tables. We need to focus on what God has called us to focus on. What you need to do is you need to raise up, you know, you need to raise up some godly leaders who will oversee this and meet this need now let's just kind of pull back for a minute and kind of think about what we've talked about they faced hostility they they faced division and they faced distraction church can i ask you a question does that sound familiar today i mean what are we facing right now in america right now hostility that we as christians have never experienced before at this level division we're the Political elites gain power from dividing us. And then distraction. We just entertain ourselves all day on our cell phones as we kind of just check out with our mind and our heart. Hostility, division, and distraction. It's exactly what they face, just in different ways. Uh, in some ways, more severe some ways less than what we were, we're facing with today. And I think the question then becomes, in the cultural moment that we're in, how do we navigate that? How do we deal with that so, that so that God could work through us to bring revival? Do we hide in the closet, bury ourselves under our dirty laundry, wait for Jesus to come back? Is that what we need to do? Oh, I know what we could do. Let's get real aggressive on social media. Let's just put it out there, baby, you know, and uh, create all kinds of stir on that I I church I I think there's a better way I I think what we need to do to navigate the times that we're in which are really no surprise to God they're surprising to us but they are no surprise to God we just need to be the light because that's what God's called us to be you know Jesus said you are the light of the world And so when it really seems dark in the world today, it's not because the darkness has become more prevalent and persuasive. I I think it's because the light hasn't been shining as brightly as it should be. In fact, I love how Daniel Henderson says it. He says it like this. He says, our problem is not the pervasiveness of the darkness, but the failure to be the light. So do you know what light does? when it shines, it dispels darkness, like the darkness just runs. And I think sometimes the church in America, you know, I'm partly responsible for this myself, but I think we're so focused on this present darkness that we're forgetting to be light in the midst of the cultural moment that we're in. Does that make sense? We're just so wrapped up in the darkness, we think, man, this has never happened before. And we're kind of intimidated by it and unmotivated by it and and uh, paralyzed by it and 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 so this is exactly the same place it's not really anything new church it's just new to us and so the early Christians faced this and so then the question what does it mean to be the light what does it mean to for us to kind of live in such a way that we anticipate a movement of God, that we're ready for a movement of God. Well, I think Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16 kind of help us in this. The Apostle Paul says this, do all things without grumbling or disputing. I love that. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. In other words, what he's saying here is this, you know, I want you to live your life so differently. I want you to be such a contrast to the culture in which we live. Have you noticed, church, how mad people are today? I mean, people are ticked off for anything. Uh, I was reading a post on, I don't know, next door, and, and somebody was complaining their, their teenage daughter works at Chick-fil-A, and she, she got cussed out three times in one day because their food was late. They had to wait for her food, and they cussed out a teenager for it. And it just reminded me, people, people are ticked off. Well, God's calling us to be different than that, to not to grumble and complain. But he goes on to say that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Does that sound like the generation that we're in today? Crooked and twisted, it does. But it's no different than what they face. And then he goes on to say, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word God. Of life. So, so what he's talking about very practically is just being the light. And so what that means is you and I are empowered by the Holy Spirit to take a stand in this present darkness for what is right and for what is true. That we're a vocal witness of sharing the gospel. But we're also a loving witness. We're not abrasive. We're not obnoxious. We're not self-righteous. But we're vocal standing for the truth and living a life of love. Does that make sense? And uh, man, we just kind of thread that needle for the glory of God. And I think we do that because we anticipate God wanting to do something through us and in us that's bigger than we could even imagine. You know, I was reading about this guy, Robert Bella, who is a professor who teaches at the University of California, Berkeley. And what he does is he studies the impact of religion on community. And uh, he was being interviewed by Psychology Today and he he made this observation. He said, we shouldn't underestimate the significance of the small group of people who have a new vision for a just and gentle world. The quality of a culture may be changed when just 2% of its people have a new vision. Just 2%. Well, the church in the United States is much larger than just 2%. What we need as a church is a new vision for seeing God work and move amongst us. What we need is a vision of being salt and light. And I think God would do some amazing things as we anticipate and see the need for revival all around us. But there's a second condition for revival and that is this, a character that facilitates revival a character that facilitates revival. So, so the, you know, the, the early Christians came to the apostles and said, you've got to do something about the Grecian widows being overlooked and the daily distribution of food. And, uh, and, and so I want you to notice how the apostles responded to this. Let me read it to you again in verse 2. He says this, and the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples. And he said, you know, it's not right that we give up the preaching of the word to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men, Of good repute, full of the Spirit, and of wisdom, whom we shall appoint to this duty. So, what what they're saying is look, we've got to do what God has called us to do. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. But I want you to find godly leaders, men who are full of the Spirit, who are, you know, of good repute and and of wisdom, and let let them take care of this need. Now, what they're describing there, they're not describing an elite class of, you know, spiritual special forces. That's not what, that's not what he's talking, that's not what they're really describing there. They're just describing what a Christian is called to be. A person of good reputation, of good repute, full of the Spirit, and full of wisdom, which is what we are called to be as Christ followers. It is literally that simple. So just, just raise up some Christians who are living it, and delegate it to them and let them, and let them handle it. Let me, let me kind of walk through this. So they, they talk about find someone of good repute. What that means is they're well-respected. They have a good reputation. And what a reputation is, is, is the result of, of faithfulness over time. Just day in, day out, ordinary faithfulness, ordinary living, showing up when you're supposed to show up, doing what you say you're gonna do, keeping your promises, walking in obedience to God, just a person of good reputation who's respected. And then then they say, find someone full of the Spirit. And so a distinguishing mark of these individuals is somebody who's full of the Spirit, which just simply means they're controlled by the Holy Spirit of God. Like the the presence of God is like manifested in their life uh, through the fruits of the Spirit. You know it when you see it, love, joy, peace, patience. It's kind of like, have you ever talked to somebody who was, you know, drunk? You know what I mean? Uh, they were intoxicated with wine or beer or whatever. And uh, I mean, you can just tell, right? I mean, you can just smell it for one thing, but, but you, could, you can just tell it because of the way they're acting. It's just unmistakable. You just know, well, I know that person's lit. Yeah, you know what I mean? And that, that's kind of what we say. But being full of the Spirit is very similar to that. Like when you encounter someone full of the Spirit, you know it. Like you sense the presence of God. There's something good about them. There's, there's something loving about them. There's something patient and gentle and uh, joyful about them. Uh, they are under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Find those people and, uh, and then let them deal with it. Uh, there's, a, there's a great story of the preacher D.L. Moody D.L. Moody was a preacher in the late 1800s and uh, there were a few pastors coming together and they were planning a crusade where D.L. Moody was invited to preach. And so they were planning out the crusade and and, uh, there was a kind of a young snarky preacher who said, man, the way you guys talk about D.L. Moody, you would think that he has a monopoly on the Holy Spirit. And uh, one of the other pastors, a wiser pastor, chimed in and said, no, it's not that he has a monopoly on the Holy Spirit, it's the Holy Spirit has a monopoly on him. Wouldn't that be cool if somebody said that about you? Wouldn't that be amazing? Because somebody would see, when they see you, they see the Spirit of God flowing out of you. And then the final characteristics, they're full of wisdom. They're full of wisdom. They they know how to take the word of God and translate it into daily life and it would take some translation right it would take some work to be able to handle kind of the cultural differences that were coming between the grecian jews and the or the, the grecian widows and the hebrew widows and all the stuff around that. it would take some wisdom to kind of navigate that to communicate love and encouragement to all of those to all of those people i i think i think what we're saying here is this what the word of god says is that this is the kind of character that ushers in a movement of God like this. Because what you have is you have men and women and students who are willing to be used by the Spirit so that the Spirit can work through them to accomplish His purposes. You see, throughout the history of God moving and reviving you know, His people, there have always been a faithful remnant of people who are praying people who are serving people who are trusting people who are obeying and people who are evangelizing there's always just a group that god chooses to work through through small groups of people that catch a vision and begin praying and uh, god shows up and does amazing things I, i don't know if you've heard about 38th street the corner of 38th street and chicago avenue in minneapolis i do know that you've heard about it because that is the very area where george floyd was killed and uh, this intersection since that whole incident has become blocked off and uh, there are murals that have been painted and there are flowers that have been laid you know there uh because of because of what happened And, and so musicians have been showing up giving concerts and uh and also evangelists and pastors in the area have been showing up and sharing and preaching the gospel there. And in the, in the year, year and a half, after uh, all of the chaos of everything that happened in Minneapolis, there started to be a movement of God right in this area. And these pastors gave in, they started preaching the gospel and people started responding and they baptized hundreds of people as people were committing their life to Christ from the neighborhood. People who were visiting who just kind of wanted to kind of see what was happening there. And there was a, a black evangelist from Hawaii that said, we've seen these beautiful moments, he says, of reconciliation and, and, forgive, and forgiveness happen in this very place. Uh, CBN, the Christian Broadcasting Network, reported that the, that the area that was once flooded with riots and chaos has now been seen as a center of the outpouring of God's power in that city. But see, what's interesting is you never hear about that on the news, right? Like you're never going to hear that on cable news. And uh, it's all because some men and women and students of good, good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom said, God, send me in, use me, work through me. And uh, he did. I just wonder, church, I just have to wonder if all of us If all of us were be willing to be used in that way. To demonstrate the character of the spirit right here in central Indiana. I think God would want to do something amazing. And here's the last one. Let me close with this. And it's this. That the conviction that really consummates revival. So you see the cultural challenge. We we see the character. And now we see uh, the conviction that consummates revival. Look with me. Look at what the apostles are going to focus on here. Look, look at verse 4. So they, you know, they come to them and say, you've you got to take care of this. They say, we can't do it. We're not going to do it. You're going to find the people to do it. We're going to focus on what God has called us to focus on. And look at what, how they describe this in verse 4. He says this, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And all of a sudden you begin to see the priority of the leaders of the church that say, these are the two pillars that we're going to build the church on, the, the word of God and prayer. You see, the word of God is the means by which people come to faith in Christ. The preaching and the teaching of the gospel, that's how people enter into salvation. That's how people know the forgiveness of God. That's how they experience the presence of God. There's no other way. There has to be the preaching of the word of God. And when churches abandon the word of God, they're they're abandoning the work of God in their church. And they're taking on some other secondary agenda. And so they're saying, we're gonna focus on the preaching and teaching of the word because that's how God works revival. But they also say, we're gonna focus on prayer because what makes the preaching and teaching of the word of God effective and fruitful are the people pray that's what makes it fruitful if there's one thing i wish our church would understand it would be this i can preach the word and the other pastors can teach and preach the word along with me but we can't change anybody's heart we don't have the power we don't have the wisdom we don't have the clever tricks to be able to soften somebody's heart where they would wanna repent of their sins and commit their life to Christ. That is the work only the spirit of God can do and he does it when God's people pray and ask him to do it. And so and so, if we wanna see lives changed here. If You wanna see your family members changed or your community changed or your neighborhood changed or your work group changed. Prayer has to precede the preaching and the teaching of the word of God. It just has to. And so Charles... says it like this, prayer is one half of our ministry and it gives to the other half all its power and its success. I mean think about that. Not clever preaching, not great jokes or great illustrations, but it's prayer that gives a ministry its power and success. And so church, I just want to challenge us as a church, as a church family, that maybe what we need to do is not think about new things, but we need to go back to the old things of prayer and the word of God and embrace those things as the people of God. And I think God would do some incredible things. Can I, can I kind of illustrate this? And maybe, maybe, maybe this is helpful. Maybe it's corny. I don't know, but you can be the judge. But um, can I just do a math equation for you? Do, do you know what three plus four is? It's not a trick question. Three plus four. Anybody yell it out? Seven, yeah. All right, so when you take verse three, where they say, pick out among you seven men and women of good repute, full of spirit and of wisdom, whom we'll appoint to this duty. So find some disciples, verse three. And you take three and you add it to verse four. We will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word Three plus four equals seven. Look with me at verse seven. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Maybe, maybe that's God's math equation for our church. That we would be a people of character who are showing the light of Christ, devoted to the word and prayer and just maybe God would do an incredible work among us. Wouldn't you guys love to see that? Wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't that be incredible? Do You know, um, back in the 1700s and 1800s in our country, it was, it was a very difficult time for the United States. The economy was really struggling. Uh, the crime was out of control uh, in the United States. It was so out of control. Women would not leave their homes at night um, for fear of being uh, attacked. Bank robberies were a common occurrence in the United States at this time. Um, the denominations, uh, churches throughout the United States were in absolute rapid decline. The chief justice of the United States, his name was John Marshall, he, he wrote to the Bishop of Virginia, James Madison, and uh, he said that the church in America is so far gone, it's irredeemable. There's no way it could be redeemed and pulled out. It's so far gone. Voltaire is a philosopher. He openly declared that Christianity would be forgotten in the next 30 years. That's how bad things were in the United States. What's interesting is they uh, did a kind of an informal survey of Harvard University. They didn't find a single Christian at Harvard University in the, in the late 1700s and the early 1800s not a single Christian at Harvard which is a school that was founded to raise up pastors they found only two at Princeton and uh at, at Dartmouth College they regularly at this time put on anti-Christian plays mocking the Christian faith and uh This kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? Kind of sounds like, I don't know, 2022 to me. I don't know. Um, And then revival came to New England. And God began to raise up a faithful group who started praying. And God began to raise up pastors and preachers who were preaching the word of God. And all of a sudden, God started moving at Yale University when a revival came there where half the student body at Yale was converted to Christ under Timothy Dwight's presidency. Timothy Dwight is the grandson of Jonathan Edwards, one of the greatest evangelists in American history. Because of that revival, Christians all of a sudden started becoming very active in social concerns throughout society. They started focusing on education. They started focusing on prison reform. They started focusing on women's rights. They started caring for the poor and the needy. And the result of the movement of the Spirit of God through Yale University in this time, at the end of the 1700s and early 1800s, is known by historians as the second great awakening in the United States. And it's just an incredible story where a revival swept through the united states and uh, so much of our nation is influenced because of those christian roots because of the movement of god and so there's some debate is has there been a third great awakening or a fourth great awakening and i i don't know the answer to that question but i i just would love for there to be awakening here at stones I, i would love for there to be a movement of god in our community I would love to see, you know, God do some amazing things in our country. I I don't know if God's gonna do that. Like I said, he doesn't owe us anything, but I, I do know this. When God's people pray, God moves. Let me give you two quick implications of this. Number one, church, prayer is the key. And not just individual prayer, but praying corporately as the body of Christ. That's the key. Of course, we need to be praying individually. But I think think what we see throughout the book of Acts over and over again, they're praying in community. They're praying corporately together. And then secondly, I would say this, that revival begins with us. It begins with us. And it begins with us asking the question, am I living out what I say I believe? Am I walking closely with God? When we begin to ask that, we begin to search our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we begin to take the steps of repenting of our sins and believing the gospel and living it out. Then all of a sudden, revival starts happening in us. And I just want to give you an invitation for that today. You can start right here, right now. All you have to do is call on God to save you if you're unsaved. Call on God to forgive you. If you are saved and you've not been living it, that's revival. Coming back to what we know is right and true, holy and good. When God's people pray, God's God's spirit moves. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I'm only a flawed vessel. I'm only a broken instrument. And so you can can take your word and multiply it in ways. You could do more in a moment than I could do in a lifetime. And so God, we just give you permission to move here at Stones. We give you you permission to revive us. We ask that your spirit would be manifested in our midst, that we we would own our own stuff, God. We would own our own sin. We would turn from it and turn to you in faith, hope, and love. It's really simple. It's not rocket science. And so God, I just pray that your spirit would be free to move among us today. You would stir us. I pray that you would raise up a remnant who would stand in the gap to pray for the spirit of God to do something great in our day. And Lord, forgive us where we've complained. Forgive us where we've gotten angry because our... Our fast food meal is kind of late getting to us. Forgive us for that, God. That just, just shows we're missing the mark. It just shows we need you. So God, would you, would you do what only you could do today? And as a church, we say yes. We say yes to you. We love you, God. We praise you. It's not, it's not for us. It's for you. So Holy Spirit, come. We pray this in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen.